1: Hey, you hear that? That's what home field sounds like. It's how you know it's time to go for the win. Oh, look at that. What did we just see? Gambet DC is your home field advantage for sports betting. Bet from almost anywhere in DC with an easy-to-use app and convenient betting locations district-wide. Online, in app, or in person. Get the home field advantage with Gambet DC. Must be 18 or older to bet. Please play responsibly.
2: Hi, this is Katie. I'm the composer and sound designer on the Hidden People. I'm doing a bonus episode today where I'm gonna have a look at a scene from season one, and I'm gonna show you how it was sent to me and just sort of talk through the decisions I made along with Chris and Megan about how the scene would end up once it was fully realised with all the sound and music in there and why we took those decisions. And the scene I'm gonna look at is from episode eleven, and it's the first half of the big action scene, which is the moment really where the stories jerked in the new direction that it's eventually going to be going in and jerked with quite a lot of g-force at that moment Uh, so it's a really fun one to be looking at and it was an incredibly fun one to work on and we spent quite a lot of time over it as well so the first thing I want to do is play you the section of commentary that we get from the storyteller at the very beginning of that scene um, as it was sent to me. So with absolutely nothing but the talking and um, the hidden people effect on the storyteller's voice. So have a listen.
3: McKenna nears the water tower, riding the toy she uses to avoid the responsibility of an adult's vehicle. Miraculously, every patrolling officer she encountered turned their head at exactly the right time to miss her. They have no idea she's already passed by them. Their search will not lead them to her destination until it's far too late to save her from herself. She takes her good fortune in stride, barely even looking over her shoulder. Perhaps that is why she has no clue that the black dogs have been following her since she left her house.
2: So let's plunge straight in and listen to how it ended up and then I'll take a step back and we'll look at why it ended up that way.
3: McKenna nears the water tower, riding the toy she uses to avoid the responsibility of an adult's vehicle. Miraculously, every patrolling officer she encountered turned their head at exactly the right time to miss her. They have no idea she's already passed by them. Their search will not lead them to her destination until it's far too late to save her from herself. She takes her good fortune in stride barely even looking over her shoulder. Perhaps that is why she has no clue that the black dogs have been following her since she left her house.
2: So I thought that the transition between this scene and the previous one, which was just um, Thomas and Nissa and Alfie standing around talking about what they're going to do, uh, was really cleverly written by Chris um, because we have a series of contrasts between... Um, what you know the pseudo visuals that we got we've got three people being still probably if it were a film the camera would be pointed at them all and we'd just be taking it in as a sort of a fourth party observing them Um, to a person outside moving very fast pedaling frenetically on her bike trying to get to safety And I would imagine, although I'm not a cinematographer, I would imagine the camera work would be trying to reflect that experience by sort of maybe seeing the pedalling or sort of being the person on the bike and having the cars wishing past or, you know, a series of shots which kind of alternated between those kinds of viewpoints. So we're moving from still to frenetic. We're also moving from light of an inside room to the dark of the night outside and, you know, as, as an audience... Remember, when I'm watching such things, I can usually sort of feel the cold air and the atmosphere when when that happens. And we're moving from people together to somebody who's solitary and from a quiet environment to a noisy environment with the traffic and everything. So it was really setting up this action scene ready for the moment when we meet the fetch and we realise that McKenna's actually not committed all these horrific murders. And so we can start fully investing in empathising with her again. And I think, you know, the, the point of view thing is helping us get ready for that. We're back with her. Um, So I really want to reflect that in the way that I realised this scene with um, with the rest of the sound. Now, I know that at the time of writing, the writing team didn't know that they were going to be working intensively with a composer, sound designer, uh, and hadn't got an idea exactly how much they could rely on sound and music to help them tell the story. Uh, So for this scene cut, the script just said musical transition. But that would have put a barrier between the two scenes and it would have lost some of the feeling of this sharp cut, which I really liked. So in order to keep that sharp cut, but also to preserve um, what the script was asking for, I made sure that the music in the transition was first of all reflecting the action as visually as possible, uh, but also carried on and then merged and segued into the action quite quickly. So rather than being a musical break, it just becomes a musical introduction, really. Um, and I used the classic ostinato trick Which is used in every single action scene In every single movie these days I think it might have been Hans Zimmer that started it But it's just it's just a go now Which is like a repeated little phrase Very fast, it's normally done on strings And the one I have here goes And it does reflect the energy and the anxiety in the scene But it also reflects the rotary action of the bicycle pedals I also had the music start faint and get louder quite quickly, as there were a camera on a cityscape zooming into her bicycling, so like we're coming back to being with her again so let's talk now a bit about those musical choices that went on top of that um pedaling figure that did a little little little, which by the way carries on for the whole eight minutes of the scene more or less um in case you hadn't spotted it um throughout the whole of season one, and this will be developing into season two I've been working with and developing some 15 or 16 um, musical sound worlds, gestures, themes, whatever you want to call them, corresponding to various characters and aspects of the story and the themes of the story wants to tell. If you haven't spotted that, go and listen to the whole of season one again. Pay attention this time. <laughs> Not really. It's fine. <laughs> um, so the various of those are being drawn in here. Um, there's a particular scene in episode eight, which is being referred to quite a lot. It's the only time we've ever seen McKenna on her bike apart from here. But the moon is very different that time. Is a kind of there's a kind of magical shimmery mood as she's kind of starting to exert her power without even realizing. Um, and the environment that she's in, the city landscape that she's in, which we hear, is actually sort of talking to the music we have, what think we think is a car horn, actually becomes a synth playing a kind of magical merry-go-round kind of carousel melody on top of the music which is always used to indicate something's up in the story, something's happening, we're moving on, there's a mystery going on Have a listen
4: Yeah, because everything's just going to be hunky-dory and smooth sailing
3: My, what a convenient change in the street light. Nothing that hasn't happened before. But surely that second green light was just a coincidence. What's the saying? First time is luck, third time's a pattern. So what would you call the fifth green light in a row, McKenna? Providence?
4: Huh, I'm making good time today. Maybe I'll get home early.
3: If you get home at all that car looks like it has other plans for you.
4: Hey, get the hell back! Just
3: Just what do you think you can do? Push a two-ton metal machine made for speed away with one hand still steering your bicycle? And just... What would you think when you succeed?
4: That was a close one. (laughs) Crazy asshole drivers.
3: Of course.
2: exactly magic is in the hidden people is never completely explained uh, in some fantasy worlds you know there's a little bit of sort of pseudoscience goes on to talk about uh, you know how these uh, how these things are possible but um this series th- there is magic and it's part of the world um and of draws on it um and you know because I'm in charge of both music and sound design this uh, affords me so many opportunities to suggest that, you know, the inner and the outer world and the magic world and the mundane world are kind of all interacting all of the time um, and those characters who are lucky enough to be able to tap into whatever magic is, whatever that power is, um, it's kind of part of them and, the you know, their selfhoods. And when I'm working on this series, that's something I do think about quite a lot. And also I feel safe in saying this because I know I'm not the only one... Um, in dating writers' movement, who thinks about these things. That As a woman, one of the things I like in the story is this suggestion that women are maybe not aware of their own power, they're not drawing on their own power, their own energy, uh, and this is why there's this disconnect with themselves, their selfhood. You know, I think there may be a metaphor somewhere for sort of um, mischanneled or pushed down... Anger about the things which are unfair or misunderstood or hold us back as women. It's interesting that all the characters who go through this journey that we really follow are female characters. You know, McKenna and Shaylee, we both see sort of come to accept and draw on and own their power. And in a different way, also Liliana um, has a, a journey of coming to sort of channel, whatever it is she draws on from the universe to do something which she believes in. So she has her own kind of journey of discovering her power or discovering the meaning in her power. So in episode eight, McKenna's starting to use her power and the music has this... And in episode 11, it goes on top of that action figure and it becomes angstier and faster... And more stressed sounding, I changed the mode, I changed the rhythm. It's a different time signature. But it's the same tune, and this is one of the things music is so wonderful for, is having a character who's, you know, like... Oh, this is going out of the States, isn't it? I bet you don't have anything as vulgar as rock over there. We had this thing called Seaside Rock in the UK, which is basically just a long, elongated cylinder of sugar with a little bit of mint flavouring normally. Um, that you can get by the seaside, uh, and all the way through going all the way through it is a little bit of red writing and some hideous food dye that probably makes our brains bleed or something. Giving the name of the place where you eat the enormous stick of tooth decay promotion, um, seaside rock. Uh, and we sometimes use it as a metaphor <laughs> I don't know this is about the British This is what we use as a metaphor For the very core of our, our personalities learn. So going through McKenna Like the writing in Seaside Rock Is this tune it's, it's, it's one of her tunes It's, her, it's a bit of her magic So if you listen really carefully, you'll hear that as well as the tune, there's also the which is McKenna's primary tune. And you'll also hear that when the tune comes in, so all the sounds. So it's like we've fully zoomed in. We have her music, her personality, and we have what she's hearing. Now, I'm really keen on using sound design um, in an emotional way. I'm kind of doing everything in an emotional way. If I carry on doing this series all the way to the end, then you'll get very used to it. Sorry about that. But in this case, one of the emotional sounds I put in were those police cars. They were not in the script, although they kind of are because the narrator alludes to them. But I wanted them to do two things. I wanted them to suggest the danger and the sense of everyone's an enemy, apart from perhaps Shelley, which McKenna is presumably now feeling. And also I wanted them to be like, there's a kind of scream about them. And so at another level, they could be representing her rising panic. Uh, And this is the kind of of thing I think about when I'm putting sounds in, is what is it in the real world and how is it going to make us feel? What's it going to remind us of in the psychological world? Okay, um, so let's have the next chunk of raw dialogue.
4: Call Thomas. Calling Thomas. McKenna, where are you? Thomas, I don't know what's going on. The cops think I attacked you, but it wasn't me. Where are you? I, I don't think it's safe to tell you. Are you in danger? I mean it's not safe for you. Those cops had machine guns. Probably submachine guns. Is that Alfie? Where are you? It doesn't matter. Just tell me where you are and stay put. We'll get this all sorted out. Why do the cops think I attacked you? Thomas, why would they think that? I was in bed at home. I saw you, McKenna. I looked right at you. Hang on, what color was her hair? Why do you keep asking that? I don't know. It was dark. She had it pulled back. It wasn't me, Thomas. I really want to believe you, but maybe while you were asleep- Just stop, okay? Just stop. Why are you two together? Where's Nissa? Damn it, Nissa, you're tracking my phone, aren't you?
0: The cops aren't with us, Mac. We just want to talk.
4: I'm turning my phone off and removing the SIM card. Can you still track me? Yes. Full of shit. I never attacked anyone tonight or otherwise. Fuck all of you for thinking I could. Mac, we never...
2: One theme that comes up again and again, in my opinion, in McKenna's story, is her deep fear, her deep suspicion that she is unlovable and unloved. And I think, to a certain extent, perhaps all of us can identify with this misgiving, this thought somewhere deep down that something about us is inherently unpalatable. And McKenna in this conversation is speaking to the three people that she trusted to be on her side, probably the only three people, to be fair, And they have chosen to believe that she is a murderer. And you can hear in the way that it's written and in the way that it's acted that she's deeply, deeply hurt by this. And to me, it's super poignant. I needed to bring that out. um, And I tried to do it in both the music and the sound. Let's have a listen.
4: Paul Thomas. Paul Thomas. McKenna, where are you? Thomas, I don't know what's going on. The cops think I attacked you, but it wasn't me. Where are you? I I don't think it's safe to tell you. Are you in danger? I mean it's not safe for you. Those cops had machine guns.
0: Probably submachine guns.
4: Is that Alfie? Where are you? It doesn't matter. Just tell me where you are and stay put. We'll get this all...
2: When McKenna hears Alfie's voice, obviously she knows... McKenna's intelligent, she's really, really bright, and as soon as she knew that Alfie was there with Thomas, she would have understood that her three allies were together looking for her, presumably, to shop her into the police. Now, um, often when I interject something to bring out an emotional moment like that, I create the space in the edit for it to happen, and this is why we can't really lock down vocal edits until I've done my work, because um, I'm forever pulling things around to add sort of dimensions. But this case, actually, they had edited in that gap. Chris, Megan and the team um, had really wanted the audience to know that this was the moment that McKenna knew she was alone. I used piano there and it's Max solitude tune, basically her primary tune, which we've already talked about, is expressing exactly those feelings of I'm alone, probably no one loves me, I am used to being alone and I have this kind of resigned depression to it all. And it's using that. But it's the first time we hear it on the piano. Um, For me, I mean, piano has all sorts of emotional connotations for everybody. But I think one of them is definitely this kind of, because it's an instrument you can play without anybody else, it can express solitude. We play the blues on the piano. And back in the 19th century, the romantic piano music was about self-expression and no one understands my tortured journey and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a long tradition of the piano expressing those kinds of feelings. So we hear it quite straight, quite low in register. And I also isolated it in the music mix um, as best as I could without it sounding weird because I wanted the piano not to feel like it was completely part of the rest of the texture of the music, but this kind of sticking out, not fitting in thing. And it sat there on top of all the rest of the music Being that kind of cold sense of recognition, that stone in your stomach, that this is definitely real. Is
4: that Alfie? Where are you? It doesn't matter. Just tell me where you are and stay put. We'll get this all sorted out. Why do the cops think I attacked you? Thomas, why would they think that? I was in bed at home. I saw you, McKenna. I looked right at you. Hang on. What color was her hair? Why do you keep asking that? I don't know. It was dark. She hadn't pulled back. wasn't me, Thomas. I really want to believe you, but maybe while you were asleep- hey, Just stop, okay? Just stop. Why are you two together? Where's Nissa? Damn it, Nissa, you're tracking my phone, aren't you? The cops aren't with us, Matt. We just want to talk. I'm turning my phone off and removing the SIM card. Can you still track me? Yes. Oh, shit. I never attacked anyone tonight or otherwise. Fuck all of you for thinking I could. Back. we
2: never. So other things going on in this passage, there's a couple I want to mention. Um, the first is the cello that comes in when Matt, I think, starts to feel outraged by all of this. While
4: you were Just stop, OK? Just stop. Why are you two together?
2: Where's Nyssa? And of course, I alluded to earlier about this potential metaphor in the story for rage, particularly in women and tapping into that and the energy that it could supply. And that one note on the cello that grows and grows and grows and it plays the key note, the tonic note... Excuse my singing. Maybe represents the rising sense of how dare you.
4: Fuck all of you for thinking I could. Mac!
2: And the other thing that I completely love, actually, in this section is that car sound effect. When she hangs up on Thomas, Um, I actually recorded that sound on what we call an A-road in the UK. Um, I don't know if it's a highway in America, but anyway, a big multi-carriage road where cars go fast in between towns. I managed to stand by the side of one and do some stereo recording. So because I was able to capture those sounds close up and very spatialised, it was a really good reflection of McKenna hanging up on Thomas, saying, fuck you for thinking I could. because. Often, I think when we're really hurt by somebody, our initial response is to say, fine, right, I reject you. There's, there's a deep anger and bruising inside, which we're not ready to sort of actually, it's too hard to look at when it first happens. So we express that anger as a rejection of fuck you and a car driving away, roaring past and driving away expresses that so well for me. So, yeah, I was really excited about that sound and what it added. Oh,
4: shit, I never attacked anyone tonight or otherwise. Book all of you for thinking I could. Mac, we never.
2: And then um, there's a common pattern in my correspondence with Chris and Megan where I get all excited and jump up and down about a sound effect. And they reply saying, that's cool, Katie, but and there's often a very practical common-sense reason why this sound is problematic. In this case, of course, Matt needed to throw her phone on the ground in the industrial estate, not by road, because subsequently, Fak the fetch, picks up the phone, and that becomes part of the plot in season one. And on this occasion, I loved the sound effect so much and the emotional effect it had, that I fought for its life. I don't always, but in this occasion, I did. Um, so we agreed that... What would happen is Mac would hang up on Thomas but then pedal for a little while before she actually throws the phone away. And, of course, she is trying to take the SIM out of her phone and we've sort of agreed that it probably is quite hard to take a SIM card out of a phone while you're riding a bike. So it was not, you know, it was credible that it would take her a few seconds to do it Um, and that would give her time to get away from the main road and into the industrial estate. So that's what happened
4: Fuck, how do I remove this stupid thing?
2: Let's listen to the next bit of the dialogue.
4: Fuck, how do I remove this stupid thing? What was- Oh, shit.
3: Four of them this time. You're surrounded, McKenna. This usually signals the end. Stay back! And after weeks of stalking, watching, and preparing- They lunge, knocking her from her bike. You might have wanted to hold on to your phone, but honestly, who would you even call? Only one thing to do now. Run. Too busy focusing on what's behind you might just run into someone you know.
2: Get out of the way, those dogs! What the fuck? So there we go. This is the moment that the whole of the first half of the season builds up to. And I was thinking as I was recording this commentary about could this have been achieved, this scene, without the big build-up that is in that first half of the season? And I decided in the end that no, you know, if you want to do it this way, you have to do it this way. This scene could never have been as disorienting and exciting and atmospheric if we already knew, for example, what was going on and who McKenna was. Um, the confusion and the mystery are a big part of what makes this so intense. And, of course, also it's a moment when I, as composer, sound designer, start to come to the foreground. And as I think I said in one of the commentary chats that we did, um, the, the thought daunted me a little bit because I knew that up until this point there'd been a lot of people working very hard on this show for a year or two. And so the amount of influence that I had at the last minute is obviously um, quite a big deal for me. And sure, I know I have directors, but still all the same, my idea is going to have a decent amount of influence over how it ends up being. So it's cool, but also a bit daunting. Um, but once I realised that this scene was going to benefit from the energy of having it completely underscored and it stays in the same key E minor all the way through and it stays in the same tempo, the same beat all the way through as well. So it's quite a bold choice for a podcast. You're kind of A movie can take it more because the visuals are dominating, but when you've just got dialogue to listen to and nothing else, you have to be very careful with your underscoring. So when I realised that this was probably the way I wanted to do it, I got in touch with uh, Chris and Megan and sort of had a whole bunch of questions about Is this the direction we want the music to go in? Is this the role we want the music to have? Is it going to be almost like a second narrator and the skeleton on which everything else you hear is structured in this way? Is is that an okay way to present the show? Uh, And they liked it as much as I did, so that was all fine. So I got to use, I don't think for the first time, because I think it came up slightly in episode seven, but this is the first time I really got to use my action music. So let's have a bit of that now. Okay, so this is how that action music fits into this little bit of the scene. What was...
4: Oh, shit.
3: Four of them this time. You're surrounded, McKenna. This usually signals the end. Stay back. And after weeks of stalking, watching and preparing, they lunge, knocking her from her bike. You might have wanted to hold on to your phone, but honestly, who would you even call? Only one thing to do now. Run. Too busy focusing on what's behind you. You Might just run into someone you know.
4: Get out of the way, those dogs!
2: What the fuck? Hello, me. And in case you were thinking, goodness, how convenient it is that the action music seems to lead so beautifully into the riff from the theme song, have a listen to the theme song and the action music together. So, yeah, my action music is very much, um, should we say, inspired by or (laughs) stolen from Michael Yates's excellent chords in in the theme song. Uh, But that was deliberate choice. It wasn't just me plagiarising. I wanted to be able to have those choices where we fit all the themes together. um, And there are other themes which also are designed to fit together. So yeah it's a really great moment when we finally hear that guitar riff when McKenna bumped into her fetch and it's it's really cool that um that was possible to do because we had the continuous scoring. Um so moving on to the sound effects those dogs and if you've listened to some of the Chromecast chat bonus features you will know that I am the dogs, that I try to record dogs. I try to get samples of dogs. None of it seemed to quite work out. And so I decided eventually just to make my own monster dog noises and to treat them sonically to make them what I think they ought to sound like. So now for the first and um, hopefully last time in my life, I am going to let you hear what those dogs sounded like throughout the stages of processing. Uh, I can't give you all of it because there's a plugin I don't have anymore. But I can certainly take you quite a lot of the way through the process. So here we go. Number one is me making silly growly noises into a microphone, which I can only do in short bursts because it gives me a sore throat. (laughs) Terrifying, aren't I? So the first thing I did was pitch that sound down a little bit, as far as I could stretch it, um, to make it... An overall deeper sound. (laughs) Next, I added a bit of saturation, which is a process which distorts the sound slightly by adding overtones. And then I boosted some of the frequencies around um, 200 hertz area, just a little bit, and compressed the sound a bit where you, it essentially turns down louder noises by a certain ratio in order that you can turn the whole lot up. <laughs> and finally, I sent some of that signal through a guitar ramp.
3: Four of them this time. You're surrounded, McKenna. This usually signals the end. Stay back. And after weeks of stalking, watching and preparing, they lunge, knocking her from her bike.
2: So the bike noise was fun because as it happened, my husband had just got himself a shiny new bike and therefore his trusty old one was going spare and was available to be abused by me. Um, So that sound of it falling over when she's toppled off it, I actually was able to record from positioning the microphones at ground level so that it sounded like we were hearing it with her ears because that's where she would have ended up hopefully putting the audience in her point of view as much as possible so that was great um I have a nice quiet space I can use with a hard floor for that sort of thing later on in the episode right at the very end uh, the fetch actually beats the bicycle up with her scythe and kicks it in rage because we kind of got away and so at that point I actually inflicted quite a lot of damage on the bike which I wouldn't have been able to do unless I'd had one which was on its way to the rubbish dump anyway. Oh, garbage dump, I suppose you call it in the States. And the reaction sound from McKenna is actually the first ever insertion of a noise from the now-famous grunt track that Jordan recorded of McKenna's fighting and exertion and reaction noises. Uh, So um, that was an exciting moment, too.
4: Hello, me. What? Why do you look just... Ah!
3: Yes, McKenna. I'm sure scooting backward will save you from the woman with the giant iron scythe who looks
4: exactly like you. Dodge as you like. I know you, McKenna Thorne. I've been watching a long time. You were no match for me.
3: You have to hand it to McKenna. Either brave enough or stupid enough to crawl right past the black dogs. Fortunately for her, they're waiting for their master to finish things.
4: Who are you?
2: Fetch. So this whole scene is another example of something I've said before in the commentary episodes about writing. Um, When the writing has been carefully constructed and the pace is really tight, it makes audio production an absolute joy because the final rhythm of every episode is rebuilt and fine-tuned at the stage of post-production sound and music. But, of course, the skeleton of all of it is constructed in the scriptwriting stage. And this scene is just a wonderful example of that, particularly because I'm scoring all the way through it. So there's there's a musical heartbeat which is pervading the scene from beginning to end, and it underpins a series of very carefully placed events so we first of all have McKenna running away from the police. That's event and threat number one. And then the phone call with Thomas and Mister and Alfie, which is event number two. And there's also conflict there. And then the dogs show up. So that's event number three and also a threat. And then we have a further threat with event number four when she bumps into her fetch. And then event number five is Shaley showing up. And I love putting the rhythm into these episodes, the the small rhythm to bring out the big rhythm. One good example of doing that is when I'm able to actually keep not only the music, but also the foley and the dialogue on the beat to punctuate these events. So we get to the end of the sequence with the dogs and she runs into her fetch. And the threat changes at that point. We go from something which is quite dramatic, big scary monsters who want to rip her apart, to something which is more sinister and which has been lurking in the wings ever since the very beginning of episode one, really, waiting to get us. Um, And that is a more insidious, creepy threat. And So the music changes. Although we retain the rhythm and we retain the key, that's the point at which you put in the quieter but rather chilling riff from the theme song. And then I was able to have the line, fetch, music stops, Brr, all on the beat. And there was a sense of something playing out to an inevitable conclusion, which is something that could be suggested when you pay attention to the structuring and the rhythm of audio drama.
4: Get out of the way, those dogs!
2: What the fuck?
4: Hello, me. What? Why do you look just-
3: (laughs) Yes, McKenna, I'm sure scooting backward will save you from the woman with the giant iron scythe who looks exactly like you.
4: Dodge as you like. I know you, McKenna Thorne. I've been watching a long time. You were no match for me.
3: You have to hand it to McKenna. Either brave enough or stupid enough to crawl right past the black dogs. Fortunately for her, they're waiting for their master to finish things.
4: Who are you? Fetch.
2: And finally, we get to where the energy curve reaches its highest point before Shaley turns up. Um... I don't usually use wind and brass as a general rule in this series a lot. They're normally there just for a little bit of colour in the background. Um, But here, as she's finally dragged to the floor by the bar guest next to the water tower, I felt it was appropriate to bring in, there are, I think, four low French horns and a tuba as well. And it's good to keep these things in reserve so when you hear them, you know that there's something really serious happening and they're there to convey that feeling where you've run out of options, you've run out of hope, the worst is now happening. Another nice thing about audio drama is that no sound is ever wasted in audio drama. I find in film, both with sound design and with music, there can be a tendency to saturate the listener's ears with every s- sonic impact possible. <laughs> um, but in an audio drama, the sound of a little fragment of music finishing, you know where the uh, the riff and the theme changes. Doop, And then she runs. And the sound of her running in itself provides a focal point for the audience's attention. We don't need anything else. And that sparsity in that bit clears space, actually, for when the dogs round upon McKenna and the brass starts. And it makes those dark colours all the more impactful for it. I'd like to talk for a minute also about Foley in this section um, because there was some fun and games involved in that. Um, First of all, these um, swipes that you hear when the fetch is trying to get McKenna with her big iron scythe. Um, I made those by swooping a bamboo cane around in my back garden with all my might above some mics attached to my handheld recorder, Uh, which is all fine, except that my garden is on, it's an end house with, and it sort of goes all the way around my house and every single bit of it is visible from the street. So I do a lot of these things after dark so nobody sees me so there I was sort of uh, 10 30 at night in my back garden in the dark swishing a bamboo cane around <laughs> um and this this has happened quite a lot uh when I've been working on the hidden people and other things uh the worst one I think on the hidden people was in episode seven when Thomas has just been chased down by those bar guests in the cemetery and jumps into his truck and the bar guests barge or try to get into his truck uh, which I actually recorded by putting the recording equipment inside my own car and uh, literally ramming the car with my body from the outside to pick up those sounds. Uh, it looked for all the world like I was trying to break into my own car. So potentially the neighbours witnessed not only eccentric behaviour but also criminal behaviour. And also in my back garden I captured the sound of the big iron scythe hitting the ground with a big clang. Um, and not being in possession of a giant iron scythe I had to, as I often do, improvise this. Um, I used my garden rake and to my ears it sounded a bit underwhelming. It sounded exactly like a garden rake hitting a garden path so I put some plate reverb on it to try and make it a little bit more resonant. Um, unfortunately this sort of made it also made it go what? a bit. Right, you um, and this is one of the things got picked up in the director's notes and listen, listen back for it. and thought, Oh, yeah, it does sound exactly like Tom and Jerry thinking about it. Uh, so I had to get rid of the plate reverb. And in the end, I layered it with a blacksmith sound that I managed, to, well, I managed to buy. And that seemed between those two sounds that seemed to do it. So that was that. Always fun with the Foley. Um, Foley is one of these things. When you get it right, nobody really notices it. It, because it sounds like the world should sound in your imagination. It sounds like what it's supposed to sound like. As soon as you get it wrong, you know. Um, and, and that's just, that's a curse of the sound person, really. Okay, I'm going to play you the final bit now of this half of the scene, which we're going to look at.
4: Water tower. Dogs don't climb.
3: The beast, the beast pounce just, just before she reaches, reaches the ladder, ladder, bearing her down. down. Claws shred her clothing. Razor teeth slice tiny rivers of blood.
4: Bagus!
3: Look up, McKenna. Shaylee stands atop the water tower, high above, inside-out coat billowing. She steps off the edge and drops well over 100 feet, landing gracefully beside the skirmish.
2: Shaylee? So there are two times in this particular half of a scene which I've chosen to look at, and it's one of the reasons I chose it, where the delivery from performer of a line by a writer has inspired something in post-production which wouldn't have been there otherwise. Um, One of them is what you just heard, uh, the way Xander Hildebrand shouts, podcast, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to make the microphone distort and clip um, from the top of the water tower. And I'll talk in a minute about how I responded to that feeling it gave me. Um, The other one is the way the storyteller delivers the line, only one thing left to do now, run. And you heard that earlier on, I put in that huge riser in the music, which sounds like a scream. Um, And it sits in that interesting place between music and sound. In film and TV and also audio fiction, there's a tendency to divide sounds up into those which could be heard by the characters, so which are inside the story, as it were, and those which are sounds that comment on the story. Typically, music is in the commenting role, it's in the narrating role, it's part of the storytelling voice, it's not really something the characters would be aware of, and sound effects are inside the story. Um, But it's not always the case. Uh, Music is often heard inside the story. And much of the time, filmmakers and audio fiction makers use the inside the story music to do something which the score would have been doing if it was there. So, for example, in this series, in episode two, in the cafe scenes, I have the band which is playing in the cafe, commenting a little bit on what's going on between our characters and in fact they even play Shaley's tune at one point so it's doing things that those musicians if it was real would obviously not have been doing and it works the other way around so in this case I think that Riser, which is a scream in the music probably is actually inside the story it's part of the narrative space because it is how McKenna is feeling which is part of the story, although it's not a part that you actually would hear if you were in the story. You would experience it if you were McKenna, and so it's there. Uh, And it's her rising panic. But, you know, it could just be interpreted as a comment, how the audience is supposed to be feeling about the whole thing, or it could even be interpreted as part of the story. Maybe the hidden people have decided to make a scary noise to freak her out even more because this is a game to them and she is a toy. And I love that ambiguity. At what point do the character's feelings become part of the narrative space? Uh, at what point are we inhabiting the narrative space with our own feelings? etc., etc.? Um, It's nothing special what I did in that riser. I, um, I got a, a preset from one of the um, digital synthesizers I own um, and modified and tweaked it and then I layered that with the sound of a fighter jet taking off, which I think I captured at an air show um, or it may be from a professional sample library, one or the other, I can't remember. But the combination of That synthetic sound and what I always think of as quite an alarming and overwhelming natural sound really uh, did something fun after that line.
3: Only one thing to do now. Run.
2: And then we have Shaley's big moment where she shouts bar guest at the top of the water tower and obviously i knew who shaley was right from the beginning right because i'd read all the scripts before i started working on the show the scripts for season one that is um so it was no big surprise to me that this was about to happen and yet when i heard the difference between that crying out voice with all the edge and authority in it and obviously the new accent after half a season's worth of shaley being very nice and obliging and rather softly spoken. Um, Yeah, like I say, it really did make me slightly hold my breath the first time I listened through. Fergus! And I wanted to bring out that visual so much because I got it from the line delivery. And for me, you know, if there'd been camera work involved here, we'd have gone from being on the floor with McKenna, with the dogs tearing over her to the whole scene of the junkyard with Shay figure on top of the water tower, or possibly looking up at it from McKenna's point of view, or maybe even hearing her off camera um, and then seeing her after that. Um, All of these things would have been really arresting in the visual medium. And I needed to think of how to do this in a strictly oral medium where, as I've just said, every noise counts and potentially excuse the visual equivalent that the audience are getting in their heads. And it's one of those things, you just try something sometimes and I just put in that wind. Stop the music and put in the wind. And every now and then when you do this job, you get that, oh yeah, that works feeling. And I got it this time. Oh yeah, that works. Um, and so that in turn inspired me to create the sound of her visually descending from the water tower, uh, which I actually did by getting a stereo mic set up and, um, making those whistly noises that you hear, literally taking myself from a standing position above a microphone, which is maybe at knee height and gradually crouching down and moving in towards the microphone. So starting on the right and moving to the left and then doing it again on the left, moving into the right and then going to the other side and doing it again, all with slightly different pitches. And in my experience, the ear will pick up that spatialization if you record it in that way. The ear can tell that there has been some change of height by just the acoustic properties that the mic picks up as you do it. Um, And I think this is one occasion where that worked out.
1: How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.
5: You will fail. So what? Everybody does. But your gym, your watch, your yoga pants, they pretend you won't. So when you miss a day, eat the pancakes. Give up on a workout? Yeah, you will fail. We all will. But we're not going to let that be the end. You see that? We're already making progress. So let's keep going. We are BODY. Start your free trial at BODY.com. That's b o d i. dot com. Selling your car on
0: Cars.com is so fast. It's like the dealer is in your own backyard. Get the best offer instantly, confirm with the dealer, and the money's yours. Cars.com is magic. Tap to selloncars.com today.
2: I did also uh, add a little of a shimmery sound to go with that, which comes in towards the end of Shelley's Descent to imply a bit of magic. So I, spent, I took quite a lot of time over doing that because I thought it was worth it. You've created the silence by stopping the music and having the wind... And you've just created that like sonic blank page for the sound of her descending to come down. then, of course, we had to have the sound of her feet landing very lightly, which again is a potent sound after all that fury and noise and confusion. Um, (laughs) In the end, I had to do it by holding on to the backs of two chairs with my hands and suspending myself and then really, really delicately, putting my feet down with the mic position quite close to my feet. So we're still in McKenna's point of view, you know, where her ears are next to the ground <laughs> with the dog savaging her. And that little break halfway through the scene was actually exactly what was needed because the second half of the scene is also frenetic action, but there's a different mood because now Shaley's in control. And if you listen through to this episode again after listening to this bonus feature, you'll see what I mean. And there was a, there's a change of everything at that point, music and sound world, everything changes. And that brings me to the end of the scene. Let's just listen to um, that final bit, this time with the music and sound in.
4: Burgess,
3: Look up, McKenna. Shaylee stands atop the water tower, high above, inside-out coat billowing. She steps off the edge and drops well over 100 feet, landing gracefully beside the skirmish.
2: Shaylee? So there you have it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope it was interesting to learn a little bit about how a composer and sound designer thinks um, and how we approach these kinds of projects. Um, You can come to the Hidden People Discord server. I do check in there quite a lot. I think it's going to be linked in the show notes if you want to join. And um, you can give me any of your feedback or ask me any questions there. Uh, I'm under my own name at the moment, Katie, but I might adopt a nickname once season two starts releasing. We'll see. So all I have to say now is bye-bye.